Hey folks, welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Joseph DiBiase and this is my podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to Pivot Point, episode three. In the last episode, I mentioned our email address. Feel free to reach out. It is pivotpoint at jsdibiase.com pivotpoint at jsdibiase.com. Well, you remember last week I mentioned that I was writing some game music over the 4th of July holiday to submit for a cinematic. Well, as it turns out, I didn't get the gig. And yes, it's a little disappointing. I mean, let's be human about it. But the truth is, I'm really encouraged because this is the first time I've been submitted to this company. It's a company that I want to be able to work with in the future. And the people who submitted me really liked my submission and are happy to submit me again. So those are all encouraging pieces of information. Yes, I didn't get the gig, but it was great fun to write it, great fun to submit it, and we'll see what happens in the future. All right, so my guest today, Ron Bokar. Ron and I have known each other for a number of years. We've worked together on a few films. Our friendship really isn't based around all of our work together. It's really been based around, well, like a friendship would be. You know, personal experiences, sharing stories, having a connection. Ron has over 100 movies to his credits. And some of the movies, I'm sure you'll know. You've got Mail, Primary Colors, Capote. He was also nominated for an Academy Award for Mixing on Moneyball. He's also a two-time winner for the Cinema Audio Society Achievement and Sound Mixing Award. Yeah, try saying that three times fast. (laughs) (laughs) He's won those awards for Angels in America and The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Okay, so let me tell you. You remember in season two when she went to Paris and she does the stand-up routine and the woman starts doing the interpretation while Maisel starts doing her routine? Do you remember that? Well, if you don't remember that, I highly recommend you watch it. You can find it on YouTube as a trailer. It is done so well. It has all of this incredible rhythm with the language. The French woman is interpreting Maisel as she's speaking English. The woman is speaking French and they are going back and forth and back. And it just erupts into this huge laughter and applause. But you hear everything. You hear all of the dialogue. You hear both French and English. It was a beautiful piece of work. And the first time I heard it, I literally jumped off my chair and raised my hands above my head like I just watched a football game and someone scored a touchdown. Yeah, it was really good. So this is the thing. When you listen to a show and you're like, is it me? Am I going deaf? Or maybe, just maybe, it wasn't mixed properly. Now, don't everybody get upset at that. Sometimes it happens. All right, here is Ron Bokar and I talking about, well talking about how it is. Hey, Joe. (laughs) Hey, Ron. How you doing, man? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. This is all crazy, isn't it? Oh, it's totally crazy. I was uh, interviewed at 11 o'clock this morning about uh, one of the episodes of Maisel for Emmy uh, 
consideration. Uh-huh. And the reporter was like, I think he's like 70 miles north of L.A. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, where he's based. Um, also working from home. It's like everybody is working from home. You know, we, we spent probably the first 20 minutes of the call just talking about how we're all dealing with work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, or the lack thereof. Yes. Uh, yes. Or the grim future prospects. What does it all mean? I know. Um, what do you know. think it means? I don't know. You know, his, his interesting take on it is, and it's probably because he's been talking to other executives and stuff in the business, but his take is that this is all going to probably affect budgets and, you know, how shows get made and expectations of producers because, you know, they're going to see all this work that's being done from people's homes. Mm-hmm. Like, what? why do you need a facility? You know, and I, you know, I pushed back a bit on that, only because to me, the big worry is security. I mean, we've had to go through at C five such huge draconian means to make Disney happy, to make yeah. uh, Amazon happy, to make Netflix happy. Mm-hmm. That I don't think they're going to throw all that stuff out the window. Yeah, and if you know, if they do, you know, while you may think that it's cheaper than to work at home. It's not. Most people don't have a third bedroom or a second bedroom mm-hmm. to set up as a workspace. All of a sudden, that workspace is going to have to somehow appear on taxes if you're going to try to get equipment rental for it. Yeah. You know, the, the burden shifts in a way to individuals that I, I can't see it being a popular move on a, on a studio front. You know, that might make sense for some projects, but, you know, the whole point of this industry has been collaboration. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you eliminate your departments from each other and put them at different various spots, you don't get that collaboration anymore. I don't know. I, I, I mean, from our business end, I don't, I don't know where it's going to go from an industry business point of view. I just yeah. Don't. Yeah. I, I remember in 2008 when we had the recession and... All the budgets went down in 2009, and everybody wanted you to work for less, and we did. We had to do what we had to do, and then we've gradually gotten back up to, you know, regular rates, if I can call it that. Yeah. But I can see us going back to the same scenario that everybody's like, well, we don't have the money now, or whatever the excuse is going to be. But uh, Right. it just seems just another opportunity to make a project cheaper and make their profits higher. But I don't know. I mean, that could just be me. That's kind of how I felt in 2008, you know? So I don't know. No, I think it's capitalism. I think you're, you're literally talking about, you know, people wanting to figure out a new way to make more money. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, man. Oh, man. So, dude, do you remember the first film we worked on together? Do you remember what it was? That you and I worked on. I, I thought it was uh, Shining Through was the first, wasn't it? No, it was Mad Dog and Glory. Oh, yeah. See, I didn't supervise that one, though. That wasn't my whole oh, game. wait. I was... You know what? I'm wrong. Mad Dog was Phil. You, you know, know what? Mad Dog was actually after Shining Through. It was Missing Pieces. That's what I thought. You're right. Missing, missing Pieces. You worked on Missing Pieces? I did. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, that was uh, with Marvin Hamlish. Yeah. I worked with Marvin on that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've thought of that film. I don't think it's ever 
gotten seen. <laughs> uh huh. Yeah. By too anybody. Bad. I was... don't. I don't know if it's ever gotten out. I. You know, it, it hits some legal issues. Oh really? And yeah, yeah. I, I vaguely remember that it, got, it it hit some legal issues, and it couldn't make whatever release date it was supposed to get out at because it was going through. Remember, we had that crazy producer on that show. Yeah, Aaron Russo. Yeah, Aaron. Yeah. So there was something <laughs> a crazy <with> Aaron, producer. <laughs> there was something. There was something with Aaron. And uh, needing some, I, I, I think, back taxes or something like that. Oh, my and gosh. the movie got thrown into some, like, litigation thing. HBO, I thought, was supposed to air it or something. Um, or was, like, part of somebody's broadcast, you know, bundle. And it never even made that. Oh, my gosh. So... I mean, I I never saw it in a theater. I never saw it when it came out because I don't think it ever did. <laughs> wow. Well, now you're making me wonder. I should go do a search to see if it's available somewhere. We should. Yeah. That and, was a and funny that, movie. And that, that was the last thing I did with Rick Dior. And as oh, I remember, right. after that show, he was moving over to Sync Sound. Yep. That's right. So let's uh, let's go back a little bit. I I think you've told me once, but I don't remember. where Where did you grow up? I grew up um, in suburbs of Cleveland, Ohio, uh, oh, right. a suburb called Parma. Okay. And uh, in there and around there in fourth grade, I also lived in Boulder, Colorado for uh, almost all of fourth grade. Okay. And that was, why was that? Was that your, your uh, relocation, your dad's work or something? Uh, well, you know, my, my family was from Ohio and from Cleveland in that area, uh-huh. uh, both sides, both, both sides of family. And uh, the trip to Boulder, my mom's brother and, and his family lived in Denver, and we had visited many times. My mom always loved the mountains. She always thought it would be the best thing in the world to move out there. My dad ended up with a job at an aeronautics firm, which was pretty mind-blowing. And we, we, we moved. We just picked up and moved. And we were out there for at least six months or so, and then my mom started like feeling very homesick for her mother mm-hmm. and her sister and other people and convinced me that we should move back. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, would cry to my dad that I missed my friends, but I didn't. I really wanted to stay out there. <laughs> mm. Uh-huh. I hear you. And what did your dad do? My dad was a toolmaker. Oh, interesting. Just a, a brief history of him is, you know, he grew up in the Depression. He, grew, he, he was born in 1915. So he was one of the oldest boys, I think, in the family. He might have been the oldest boy in the family. When the Depression hit, he went and basically quit school. Everybody quit school except for the youngest kid. And everybody went to work. So my dad started shining shoes um, on Euclid Avenue in Cleveland. And then ended up working at the Ford Motor Company when he was something like 16, I think. And, you know, totally illegally. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh, right. You know, just to bring in money for the family. And uh, he... He got his GED when I was in high school. Amazing. So he became a toolmaker by trade, literally by trade, by learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, he became a toolmaker. That's so. that's a self-made man, you know, just keep totally. on working totally. and finding his way in life and doing yeah. what he needed to do to survive. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. yeah. And, and being in an, good at his work. Uh, yeah. I was yeah. going to say, in an industry that was just kind of developing, you know. Yeah. So, okay. So, you're, you were in Ohio. Now, I'm sorry, Ron. I just don't remember. Do you have siblings? No. Okay. I wasn't no, sure. My, I, my, my parents had me when they were 40. Yeah. So. so, what was that like growing up an only child? Well, it was it was interesting. My mom was a homemaker. She had been a she she had been a factory worker working at White Motors before World War II. And then when World War II happened, she actually enlisted. So she was a marine for a very short period of time and was even stationed in Pearl Harbor well after Pearl Harbor was Pearl Harbor. Um but wow. she was stationed in in Pearl Harbor and she was kind of in some cooking detail. Um I have photos of her standing next to these like one-story tall bowls that they were mixing with flour and making breads and you know just gigantic stuff to feed the troops. I've got her uniform. I got to figure out a way to mount, to mount it. Uh, you know, mount it behind glass. Yeah, um, man, that'd it's, be it's, great. It's, it's kind of a cool thing. But anyway, so she had she had a little bit of a marine you know way of dealing with stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, hmm, let me guess what you're talking about here. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, and and I had my dad. My and my dad worked fifty uh, some odd fifty six hours a week, mm-hmm. uh, pretty much I, fifty hours Monday through Friday, and then always went in on a Saturday for at least six hours. Mm-hmm. So you know, I, I you know therapy. Um, I didn't <laughs> have the kind of familiar connections that we've learned since help children and nurture children. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I wasn't loved and it doesn't mean that I wasn't cared for, but I was left alone a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I was left alone a lot from my own devices, which, mm-hmm. you know, presents both a wonderful way to discover the world, but also provides a lot of damage <laughs> mm-hmm. that that rears its head as you get older in life mm-hmm. so uh yeah i you know I, I i had a happy childhood probably on a lot of levels but i also you know with it comes a lot of baggage sure yeah you know i'm learning about some of the 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 damage and uh, debris left yeah. over from that time period but you know yeah, well, and that that's difficult and fortunate all at the same time. A lot of people uh, don't ever have the the difficult things that come up as awareness, and so they stay in that subconscious that then somehow drives the bus in their life. So yeah. it's really great to be able to have it become to the forefront of your life, and then the difficult part is having to deal with all that, but then it's no longer driving the bus, which is the good thing. Yes. Very, so, very true. Yeah. Um, and then when very, did you... Very true. Didn't you tell me you played trombone? No. That, no. Never played trombone. Oh, my Never gosh. played any, any instrument. I, tr- I, I thought you told me you played some musical instrument. I, well, I tried to learn guitar, uh-huh. and uh, the reason I wanted to learn guitar is because I wanted to learn rock and roll, and I wanted to learn how to play... Um, oh, what, what is it? The House of the Rising Sun. Right. That was the one thing I really, really wanted to hear. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, my parents found a really, really great teacher in retrospect that mm-hmm. I didn't use well at all. <laughs> uh-huh. Know? Yeah. So I learned only a little bit of guitar. Um, okay. But then I was getting into theater, and I, I got the theater bug. So that when we amazing. jumped to high school, 
in 10th grade, um, I was big into theater. Did, so is that what led you to film then, from the theater to film? Like, yes. I'm trying to find the connection. Uh, How did you get to Well, okay, so, so the connection here? was I, w- I was I was in theater, and the high school I went to, Normandy High School in Parma, Ohio, uh, had a whole vocational wing to it. And the one really cool division they had was they had an, uh, a television studio. And that television studio fed the local PBS daytime kid programming. From high so, school? Yeah, from, from the studio in the high school. So there were working professionals there you know, for the art department and that kind of stuff. And then you took a course. And they were three-hour blocks. And you would go in... And for those three hours, you'd learn, you know, composition, you'd learn editing, you'd learn all these different things that were being done in electronic television world. And then there'd be at least one show you'd have to tape. So you'd become the crew. Nice. You know, so they basically would get a free crew <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> for, for us to learn the gear and to learn everything like that. And that began to get me to think about moving away from doing work on a stage in front of a camera and moving to doing things behind the camera. I didn't want to become a starving artist my whole life. Mm. And all I ever saw were artists, you know, like <laughs> there was, a, I, I had one uh, of my favorite drama teachers who wanted to move to New York City. So he, he quit teaching and moved to New York and I helped him move. I like, you know, drove this wonderful Barracuda uh, home from New York like, we drove out there with all his boxes and shit. And he unloaded, went into his apartment. We shook hands. I took his Barracuda and drove back to Cleveland. Oh, my gosh. And, um, you know, and left it in his driveway, and then his wife sold it later. Oh. Um, but, you know, <laughs> that's another story. <laughs> that's another story. But, but the whole next year after that, you know, he was telling me that, you know, he hadn't had work. He was, like, living mm. on his savings. All I did was, like, I don't want to become that. I don't want to become the kind of guy that wants to be in. You know, I mean, it just, it just scared me. Sure. And, again, I wasn't thinking movies or television. I was thinking theater. I was thinking acting mm. on, you know, on, on, on a stage. But I still didn't let it burn out completely. So... Senior year, I was applying for different colleges, and Ithaca College had a program for television radio that was housed within the drama department. So it had heavy links to the theater that was there. Mm. So I went and took a tour of it and really loved Ithaca and got in. So I went to Ithaca. I was really kind of enjoying the television and radio department. Uh, there were maybe 40 of us, mm-hmm. you know, part of the TVR department. And I had friends that were also in the uh, cinema department. You know, they would go out with these cameras and do all this cool shooting and come back. And, you know, they, they were always, like, going out and doing things. And I would go with them every now and then and see what they were doing. And then I'd go back into the studio where we were learning how to use the equipment. And that year, I think it was my, my sophomore year, uh, halfway through it, within the fall, I was directing the local, the, the Ithaca College Bombers football broadcasts that they would do. And we had like multi-cameras. Wow. You know, wow. locked down, locked down and, and tracking. But the one camera I was most impressed and wanted to use the most was the guy on the ground carrying it around sure. doing all those cool, you know, point of view things. 
But it was basically like this 50-pound camera that this guy had to hold. Right. With this huge umbilical cord coming out of it going into a uh, wheelbarrow that another guy was like <laughs> carting around. And that, too, was like attached to a huge battery pack. You oh, know? my and gosh. You had to change the batteries like every hour because, it, you know, they were dying on them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I took a look at that and said, so if this is portability and I like being outdoors doing stuff, I've got to get away from television. So I transferred to the uh, cinema department. And Ithaca at the time, a lot of schools back then, and I'm talking like, you know, mid to late 70s. Yeah, there were no fine art degrees. Mm -hmm. So Ithaca, in order to graduate with a cinema degree, it's a cinema of, it's a it's a science degree. It's a cinema studies of science. Mm. Um, Right up your alley, which is kind of fun. Yeah, yeah, which is kind of fun. But it made me have to take a lot of really stupid courses like market research. But (laughs) (laughs) right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, hated market research. and statistics. I hated statistics. I was like, what does this have to do with, with editing? I, you know, I, this is not what I wanted. Anyway, yeah. um, <laughs> my uh, girlfriend, soon to be my first wife, her family were farmers in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that they did was maple farming, you know, for maple syrup. Mm-hmm. And my senior year, I did... I, 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 I hustled the state of Massachusetts. I hustled a couple of other farmers that were doing this stuff and ended up with like a few thousand dollars to actually go and make a movie about the maple industry in Massachusetts. Holy cow, Sean. And, and that, that was a riot. You know, I took a crew. We had a lot of fun. We came back. We found out one of the cameras had a light leak. <laughs> <laughs> I had to go back and and reshoot a whole bunch of stuff myself at the very end of the season before the season ended. You know, we had a lot of the issues, but I I learned after I'd shot everything like that, I was having so much fun editing. Oh, interesting. That I realized, you know, this is kind of where I want to go. Not directing. I, I don't really I don't really need to do the directing because in a way editing is the final it, it, it's the final rewrite, sure. and it's kind of like the final directing pass in a lot of ways. And, uh, you know, I don't have to worry about a light leak because they've already worried about it. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. You know, so th- there were other aspects of editing that I liked a lot more with the idea that um, I could go that route. And Ithaca had very little contact with entertainment and the mm-hmm. entertainment industry in Hollywood, but it had really heavy contact with a lot of industrial firms throughout New York State and, you know, throughout throughout the East. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So all of us that went to school there, most of us, there were two kids whose dads were in the business that just assumed they would always, you know, be part of the business out in Los Angeles. But all the rest of us, and I'm, I'm talking 12 of us, mm-hmm. there were 12 of us in the cinema department. Compare that to today. Oh, I know. It's... You know, it, 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 but there were twelve of us, and and not all of us were, were cinema majors. Some of us, uh, some of them were photo majors, mm-hmm. so, right? So there were even smaller amount of guys that were thinking, or you know, guys and women that were thinking about going into the industry, um, the film business. So anyway, I, I ended up graduating from Ithaca, and Ithaca helped me get a job at a company in Buffalo that was doing industrial films, 
And that was fine because my girlfriend um, was working for the Dean of Humanities office and was offered a job at graduation to continue on in that role. Mm -hmm. And she thought, why not? She had a lot of loans to pay, so it would help defer some of those loans and get that stuff taken care of. And she wasn't so sure she wanted to get into advertising, which is what she was studying. And, you know, why not just park there for a bit and see what happens? So Mm. she was going to be in Ithaca. I was going to go to Buffalo. It's a whopping five-hour drive. Um, We would still be able to see each other on weekends and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, I would see what it was like to do industrial films. I didn't last. I, I was doing that for like four or five months, and I needed to get out. It was just... The, the, the firm was a nice nice firm run by a couple of old guys who were right on the borderline of retirement. Like okay. They didn't need to do this anymore. Mm. So they were only looking for the easiest, the easiest type of jobs to do. Mm-hmm. And many times I would go into work and not have anything to do. Uh, that's the worst, isn't it? So, yeah, it is. So I, I left that. Did you have something to go to when you left? No. <laughs> no. No. He, Here's this next arc of the story, which is kind of hysterical. So okay. I've got a friend who lived in Pleasantville, New York, which is a suburb up in Westchester. Sure. And he was one of the guys, part of the cinema department, but he followed photography. And he had a job as an assistant to a, a very well-regarded photographer in the city. But he was still living at home, and uh, they had a spare bedroom. So the, the family was wonderful and offered me a spot in that bedroom, and I would commute into the city. And I'd come, I'd come into the city with a pocket full of quarters. And at Grand Central, when you got out, there were banks of phones. Mm-hmm. So I would just sit down, and I had a list of different film companies that I had found through various you know means, and uh, just start placing phone calls to see if anybody was interviewing. Dude, was that's awesome. The most, it, was, it was painful as all hell. I yeah. would give myself four or five of them to do in a day. Mm-hmm. And if nothing happened, I would wander the city. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> and, yeah, then, but... and then go back home. You know, go go back to their house yeah. and you know report that nothing happened. Yeah, four or five no's, and that's all your soul can take. Right, right. And, but I mean, some would lead to interviews, and then some of those interviews would lead to other interviews, and and that kind of thing. So I did that for a while, and finally. Uh, I had met some really, really great people, and you know, one of them was a, a trailer maker by the name of Michael Spolin, who didn't have anything for me at all. He, he basically said, "Look, I've already got an assistant. It's, I'm a small band here. It's just me and me and this this woman, and yeah, you know, she's not planning on leaving, and I'm not planning on getting rid of her. But good luck. Stay in touch." And I ended up interviewing with another company called Madison Films that uh, was a very interesting little tiny film company also that would make these generic commercials. They, were, they would make one commercial that could be used by anybody, and then they would, make, they would shoot these inserts that would be the company that had bought the commercial to use in a market, in a regional market. Mm-hmm. And then they needed someone in shop to basically shoot these inserts, cut them in, and then run their printer. They had a little AV printer to make a new negative that they would then, you know, duplicate and mm-hmm. send off to this company that was doing its thing. They didn't have a role, though. They didn't have an opening at the time. So mm-hmm. um, they liked me. They said, keep in touch. So I decided that if you're going to be in the film business, 
you're either in New York, which seemed very small to me, or you're in Los Angeles, where yep. I had never been. So I climbed in my Volkswagen Rabbit and drove to California and oh. had friends also from Colorado who were house-sitting. Right. So you, I didn't know, you went to L.A.? Yeah. When you, how old were you when you did this? I was, it was in 1979, so, you know, it's like a year or so after college. So yeah. what was that like, I, you know, by yourself, driving to L.A.? By myself, drive to L.A. Um, I had a couple of contact, a couple of people to connect to, to yep. interview with. Most of it was the same thing, didn't lead anywhere. I was there for about a month, and the owner shows up. <laughs> and wants his house back. Oh, crap. So we all have to, you know, find places to live. Um, I signed up with some agency that was, you know, giving me all these addresses to go and look at for places that I could maybe live at. And again, I'm, I, I have no income. I'm right. like, you know, I had money left over from graduating and I had money left over from the job in Buffalo. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, I was slowly burning through it all. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I was told to go to an apartment or a house, or like, like it was a room in a house or something like that, on a corner or, or near Venice and Rose. That's all I kind of remember from that moment. And I remember driving somewhere in that general area and parking in the street, going to the door, Knocking on the door, ringing the doorbell. Nobody was there. Nobody showed up. I mm. walked out, and my car was gone. No. <laughs> oh, Ron. Oh, my god. I had to dude. find a uh, barber shop or something. I ended up at a barber shop to call the police. Police finally came. We drove to the spot. I pointed at it. I said, see, it's an empty <laughs> parking spot. It used and to be my car. my car was. <laughs> oh, they put down, wrote down all the information, everything like that. I was staying, the house we were sitting in was out in Woodland Hills, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. I'm, I'm at the corner of Venice and Rose, which oh, man. I don't even know if, I don't even remember if it intersects Venice and Rose, but I'm there. I'm in that area. And the police basically dropped me back at the barbershop. <laughs> right, thanks. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, what, um, yeah. what do I do to get home? You know, back then there weren't ATMs, there weren't, uh, you know, I, I I don't even think I had a credit card, you know. I oh mean, oh my gosh, that's horrible. What do you do? I had what? like I had like five bucks in my pocket. It was it was just kind of ridiculous. I tracked down some of my friends that I'm I was living with at work. You know, none of them were in the area, but one of them took pity on me and came and picked me up and drove me back to the house. Oh my in gosh, hills. you must have felt and, horrible. Oh, I just felt so alone and. Yeah, it was it was pretty bad, you know, and, and it's not like you had cell phones to call your girlfriends or anything like that. Yeah. So, you know, I, I go back home. I, I called my mom and dad, told them what happened. You know, I called my, my girlfriend, told her what happened. You know, everybody was crying on the phone and everything mm. like that. You know, mm. what are you going to do without a car? Uh, the insurance company told my family because the insurance was still through my dad, you know, because mm. back then, you know. Right. You didn't have a job. You didn't get so... They um, they were gonna you know have me rent a car, but the you know the car was stolen. this is a Friday of course that it was stolen, and the car like rental place wasn't open until Monday. So, oh gosh! Right. Um, I was gonna have to go the weekend without a car, which was pretty horrible. But 
I you know I ended up bringing out one of those like sheets of paper where you write L.A. New York and you write all the things that are good about L.A. and you write all the things that are good about New York. Yeah. And yeah. New York won out. There were just more things written about what I liked about New York more than L.A. Mm-hmm. Was My that, folks bought me a. Was that what? it? Yeah, so that was it. You decided that's that it. Was I'm it. going. Okay. I got to the airport somehow. I don't remember how I did that. I think same guy. Uh, yeah. Michael Ross, I think it was, his name is, um, drove me to, L, uh, to to LAX, got on the plane, and flew back to Ohio. And I was going to figure out once I get to Ohio what I'm supposed to do. Oh, well, man. all right. Back then, we didn't have answering machines. We didn't have cell phones for yeah. people to leave messages. We didn't have anything like that. So you always gave somebody's phone number. So I gave Madison Films and Michael Spolin and anybody else that I interviewed with my my parents' phone number is a backup phone. Mm-hmm. So I land in Ohio. My parents pick me up, and my mom said, "Oh, you know, there's this company, Madison Films, been trying to reach you. Oh my, just today. Wow." And I'm like, "You're you're you're kidding." And she's like, "No, I think you know. It sounds like maybe it's a job offer." So I called, and yeah, they offered me a job that started like you know that week. <laughs> Isn't <laughs> like, that how amazing? How soon can you get here? Talk about so like synchronicity, up. dude. Oh, it was it was ridiculous. I didn't. I, ne- I never even unpacked the clothes that I was like had. I got on a Greyhound bus and came to New York and crashed with another friend uh, for a while until I could get my own apartment and ended up working for Madison Films. And that that went on for a few months before Michael Spolin called me to work for him because his assistant did leave. And I moved into doing trailer work. And it was from doing the trailer work that moved me into sound. Because Michael would cut these, like, amazing trailers. And at the end of the day, step away from the the, the moviola, light up a joint, and say, all right, you finish it. (laughs) And I'm like, uh, what? Yeah, right. What does that mean? There's a library of sounds over there. Go ahead. You can, like, you know, if we need anything more there, we've got a dubber. You can make a copy of it off the quarter inch. And I'm like, oh, okay. Oh, wow. So he would leave me alone, and I would be there till, like, 3 in the morning, you know, putting sounds for this mix that we're having the next day. (laughs) Oh, jeez. Okay. And then we'd get to the mix, and I'd, you know, be... um, Critique the work would be critiqued by both Michael and the mixer, uh, Bobby Elder. Okay, you know he would tell me what I did right, what I did wrong, and then the next salvo of commercials we would bring in, I'd hopefully have done better. And that's kind of how I learned sound. <laughs> that's amazing! Wow. So, and why did you leave that? It sounded like it was you, know, you got this job offer at. at was it Spalling? Did I get the name? No, right? no. Well, yeah, yeah. Michael Spolin. 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 Yes. Yeah. So what made because you I decide that enter- was a- Because I wanted entertainment. I really oh, didn't okay. want uh, commercials. And, oh, I see. You know what I was getting myself involved with didn't seem like it was going to go anywhere. I mean, this is all they needed me for. Mm. So I never really saw myself being able to integrate in that, and I really wanted to get into. Uh, trailer making. The other big allure was the show Michael was going to start to go on to immediately was this film that Frank Zappa directed called Baby Snakes. Uh huh. So 
it got me kind of connected with one of my heroes of youth. You bet. Because, yeah. you know, Frank was going to have to come around and approve stuff, and Frank was touring, so we're going to probably be able to go to his concert, and it was great. But then, small world shit, so Michael had done the trailer campaign for a George Romero film called uh, Day of the Dead, or Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead was the one that he did. And then George did a movie called Night Riders mm. that I got involved with with Michael mm-hmm. because the campaign was being done by Michael. And then George was going to direct Creep Show and ask Michael to come on as the picture editor. And that was my stepping stone into doing feature films. Wow! So we do work as so an assistant I was in editing. I okay, was assisting Michael. I, I was the first assistant editor on Creepshow with Michael Spolin, who was the editor, main editor on it. Uh, we were in Pittsburgh for nine months, maybe. I don't know. It was a long shoot, and it was a long edit. And at the very end of it, there's some dirt in here I won't get into, but at the very end of it, Michael kind of like said, look, I have to get back to New York. I don't even know if I want to be in the business anymore. This has really burned me out. Mm-hmm. I'm going to split you can come back to, you should just say, fuck you to Pittsburgh and get the hell out of here. And I oh. was like, you know, not a bad idea. I I just gotten married, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. before the job started. So I wasn't even with like my girlfriend from college, who is my, my wife now. And, you know, I hadn't even been with her for that long. And I'm like, you know, it, it, it makes sense. We should definitely just get the hell out of here. Mm. And we're getting kind of ready to leave. And... The technical people that were part of George's organization comes up to me and goes, you know, um, we could really use some help getting it ready for a mix. And I'm like, oh, guys, come on. I, I, I've i been here for too long. i got to get the hell out of here. And they basically begged me mm-hmm. <laughs> right, to stick around. They had another guy from Pittsburgh who was going to work on it. And they realized they needed to bring in more people from New York. So... I was like, oh, you know, what the hell? How long is it going to be? And they were like, maybe another three months. I'm like, all right, I'll do another three months. So I stayed on those other three months just doing sound. I got to meet people who were in the business here in New York. Mm -hmm. And that gave me the connections that led to the rest of my career pretty much. That was my foray into the business. Yeah. And the and the choices that you made, especially I go back to the one in L.A., and you're just doing the old Benjamin Franklin method. Okay. But that's all it is in life, isn't it, Joe? Yeah. And you make your choice, yeah. and then there's something on the other end waiting for yeah. you. Yeah. It, it seems... But but I, I think life is a lot like that. It, you know, it may not be that phone call from the company that you interviewed for, but it might be something else. Yeah. That you had done at one point that opens up a door for, or... Where it might be a friend that all of a sudden goes, hey, you know, there's so-and-so. And for me, I guess my whole life has been these connections, these mm-hmm. these weird little, you know, ways that lead to the next thing to do. It's always kind of done that. And, you know, it's the same with once I, once I got into editing, you know, after Creepshow and coming back to the city, I didn't know if I wanted picture editing or if I wanted sound editing. So mm. I, I was trying to get a lot of picture work. 
and I was getting a lot of little documentaries to cut and shorts to cut for directors that would actually go on and do you know some really good things but I was being paid as a sound editor mm-hmm. so you know I was making money doing sound I was following this muse of wanting to to cut picture Mm-hmm. And then finally, at one point, somebody was like, you know, you got to get in a union. And I was like, well, how do I do that? And they were saying, well, you got to get on a union show or you got to get in a union job. And at the time, it was hard to get on a union show unless you were in the union. It's the usual catch-22 sure. on that front. Yeah. yeah. But there was, a, there was a trailer house, and Michael Spolin was working for this trailer maker who was a very evil man. Um <laughs> Uh-huh. But it was a union house. So if you worked for them for at least 30 days, you got into the union. It was the old Taft-Hardley act you yes. could use. So I basically knew of a couple of jobs that I could do if I was in the union that were coming up. But not being in the union yet, I decided to jump at it. Mm. I started working at this trailer house. Do you remember the name Nick Myers? Oh, yeah, Sure. He was a wonderful music editor. Yeah. Well, Nick was working at the trailer house. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Cutting trailers, not just music, but cutting trailers, cutting commercials, cutting all this other kind of stuff. Nick and I hit it off. I was there working with Michael, Nick. I was the assistant. I was the whipping boy, basically, amongst all these different editors. And learned a ton. I was there for maybe two and a half, three months. Got into the union and then got a call to start supervising Foley on a weird little show called Joey. I, I left. I left the Luthra. Luthra Films was the name of the, uh, the, the, the trailer company. Mm. And uh, joined the masses of freelancers uh, who were working out of Sound One at the time. Okay. So that was how I ended up into, you know, cutting sound and supervising Foley and that, that kind of thing. And when did you start C5? How did that happen? Well... Because you were a freelance for a while, right? I was freelance for a while, yes. Um, 1984, I'm, I'm at uh, Sound One working. A few years into that experience, I had worked with Evan Lottman. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fully editing, but Evan was the, the main picture editor on the show. And, you know, he remembered me. And Evan was Alan Pakula's editor. Mm-hmm. And Alan had a couple of missteps of filmmaking so that he wasn't getting big money anymore to do big things. Mm -hmm. And he was going to do a show for Vestron. (laughs) Um, You remember that? I know that company. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Yeah, he was going to do a show for Vestron. Lorimar Vestron, I think it was. It was a stage play called Orphans. And he was going to direct that for the the theater, for for, for movies. Mm Mm-hmm. And Alan didn't want to use the same people that he'd used in the past, not because he didn't like them or anything. He just wanted to shake it up, and he wanted to have somebody that uh, might approach it from a different, uh, a different way because they didn't have a lot of money. And Evan called me and said, so, so you've done this before, right? And I, I, I lied and said, yeah. Um, he said, well, you know, you know how to cut dialogue, right? And I, I said, yeah, I do that all the time. I oh never cut dialogue. God. You know? yeah. um, I go out and I meet Alan out at Kaufman Astoria. And, uh, you know, we all shook hands and everybody was happy. And I get the job. 
And that was my first supervising job. And that must have been early on. That must have been like 85, 86 maybe. Mm. Like it was a few years after I got into the into the union and got into the business. And then from that, Evan would always hire me, which was really wonderful. And yeah. Alan would always keep hiring me. Uh, it took him a while to learn my name, but, <laughs> Ron. but that's okay. Wrong. Well, it, it was the guy who, who, the guy we used last time. Could we get him again? Uh huh. That, right. That's what I was for at the guy many we jobs. used last time. Um, the guy we used last time uh, until the end. The last time he and I worked together. You know, he actually called me up and asked me to go out and have lunch with him, and he told me all these stories about what it was like to shoot the the show. That it was the Devil's Own. Mm. I mean, it was a really, it was a really kind of warm. Like I could see me then hanging with him as he got older, and you know, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, um, which would have been a riot. But yeah. um, that got me supervising, and from all of that, I met Skip Levesay. Mm-hmm. And Bruce Pross, and I had met uh, Phil Stockton, and I worked on a film called Little Monsters, mm-hmm. and needed to have some very special sound design work done on it that I didn't necessarily know how to use, and I didn't have equipment for. And I connected with a friend of mine, uh, Danny Cacavo. His company at the time, uh, he was partnered with Bob Kinkle. They were doing commercial work, and I was like, you know, look, I know you're able to lock against three-quarter inch videotape, but um, if I brought in like a movie thing, I got to do these design things. Can we work on doing some design stuff, you know, between Bob, you and me with sound effects and some music and maybe weird sounds that we can just... And so I started doing that with, with them for that film and ended up realizing that I really needed to have that kind of equipment or I needed to have something that would allow me to be creative because mm. I, I was hitting that roadblock you can sometimes hit with not having the gear at your at your hands and you didn't even know who to ask to help you do this stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Bob and Danny were, vi- were pretty happy doing the work that they were doing. They didn't really have room for me, so I was, like, wondering what I was going to do. And about the same time I was wondering what I was going to do, Bruce Pross knocks on the door and he's standing there with Skip, and they're both saying, so we're thinking about starting a company. And I'm like, hmm. okay, what do you want to do with this company? And you know, Skip was like, well, you know, it's going to become digital sooner or later, and the only gear that's available right now is really expensive. It's uh, you know, the Synclavier-based sound yeah. editorial stuff and sequencers. And so we were thinking of maybe trying to get a couple of these and getting a space maybe down in Chelsea or down in Soho or something and, you know, kind of setting up shop. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, it sounds like you guys have thought this out. You sure you, you know, you want another partner? And I, I'm sure. Let me talk to my wife and see if we can afford it. Mm-hmm. So we did. Um, we bought in. I bought in. You know, Skip had mm-hmm. bought in. Phil bought in. Um, Bruce bought in. We had a lot of other investors. In 1989, March 31st of, Mar- of 1989, we opened shop. C5, C5. was born. Yeah. Now, are you, are you at the same location, or did you guys move? We've moved twice. You've moved twice, okay. Uh, yeah, we, we expanded a great deal between 80, 89 and 2005. Mm-hmm. 2005... 
was still fielding issues from 9-11 and we had to move because we were just not getting work. All of a sudden, a lot of work had dried up in the city and it was getting thinner and thinner and harder and harder to maintain the size of the facility that we had had. Mm-hmm. We were up to like 15,000 square feet wow. um, in, in, in just the city alone. We had a Foley house that we, had, that we still have today um, that you know is gigantic by comparison, but it, you know, it's in an industrial park, so it costs hardly anything to rent that kind of space. But in Manhattan, you know, 15,000 square feet of space was getting to be astronomical. Mm-hmm. We, we couldn't maintain that, Phil and I. By then, it was just Phil and I that were in charge of the company. Skip had moved on. Oh, wow. And, so, uh, and the other partners have moved on. Yeah, Bruce had left first, and then Skip left. And Skip left in 2003. Hmm. That so, must have been difficult um, because he probably took his clients with him. He only had a couple. Okay. So it wasn't the worst thing in the world. And, mm-hmm. you know, he still liked working with us for Foley work and that kind of stuff. It wasn't a breakup of animosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Skip wanted to move to Los Angeles. So it was even a complete location change for him. Mm-hmm. So he wasn't really going to be that badly in, in competition with us. You know, he was going to take the Cohn brothers. But, mm-hmm. and again, it, 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 there was no animosity. It was a divorce. Yeah. I'll say that. You know, divorces are usually tied up in business things. So the business mm-hmm. buying him out wasn't easy. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was going through my own personal divorce at the same time. Oh, so yeah. I was getting hit from like every angle possible to mm-hmm. drain whatever money I had in the bank. <laughs> mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. And, and you know, there was emotional shit involved with all that, like any kind of a divorce would. And, uh, the, the best part of it is I think we all shook hands yeah. at the end and, and it was fine. Um, but then Phil and I were close to thinking of having to close at that point. Mm. And we discovered, uh, the art of, uh, going bankrupt. <laughs> Oh, wow. Did you guys go bankrupt? We, we had a file for bankruptcy because the leases we were tied to were astronomical leases. And the only way to protect ourselves individually was to have the company go bankrupt. Wow. Otherwise, we might have been attached to those leases. Sure. Personally. Yeah. You know? So, but, but the way we wanted to do it, and you know, this is something that I still think Phil and I did right... You know, we didn't want to let the creditors get screwed. The only persons that we were kind of didn't give a shit about were a couple of the landlords that we had. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, one of them was cool and was even going to help us, you know, get out of the lease a little bit. But the other one was going to be a real prick. And, Mm. you know, he's the one that we didn't really give two shits about at the end of the day. But we didn't want to, like, kill them all either. We knew we were going to be able to move somewhere else and bounce back. Mm. You know, we, we just had this gap of work. Mm-hmm. So we, we found space with Soundtrack. Soundtrack, being another recording studio in town, had rented space for a production company. Mm. And the production company kind of reneged on using all of the space. So half the space was available. Two of the rooms in that space were perfect little design suites. Uh, I took over one of those rooms, and Paul Shu at the time was doing some work and needed space to be able to, to work. So he... He started working in the other room, 
and ultimately asked if he could become a partner with Phil and I. Oh, so nice. he 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 joined us at that point or around in that point. Okay, which was great. Yeah, and then in two thousand and nine. Uh, soundtrack decided they wanted to either get rid of that space. I forget the exact reasons. We were ready to move on anyway. Mm-hmm. So then we moved to the location we're in now, and it's I'm hoping the location we're going to be able to stay in for the remainder of whatever the lifespan is of C5. Sure. Yeah. You know, we really don't know what's going to happen now where we are now with the with the whole virus situation. But right. um, you know, we're we're hopeful. That uh, we'll 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 just keep going on. <laughs> yeah. So, dude, I got to tell you, your your journey has been kind of classic in some ways, where it's just not a straight shot. Which you know, some people <laughs> think it's always a straight shot to where we end up being. It's the zigzag and the step backwards, and I, so much of this I didn't know. And I'm so impressed with your risk taking and hmm. decision making. I particularly love the story of going into New York City with a pocket full of quarters and calling <laughs> places for work on the payphones. I think that that just says it all. You know, you're sowing seeds. And like so many of us, I mean, myself included, I would call and call and call and call. And somebody would call me out of the blue from somewhere else. And that's where the job would come. And yeah. Now, as you look back, would you have done anything different? Oh, Probably not. Uh, maybe some of my choices of loves. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, we'll just save that for another podcast. Yeah. Well, dude, this has been really great. I so appreciate you taking your time, telling your story, and uh, we having a chance to chat. Me too. I got to deal with email all of a sudden showing up. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. All right, man. We'll talk soon. All right, cool. Well, there you go. Ron Bokar. What an amazing journey. Not exactly a straight line, right? Go to L.A., have your car stolen, go to New York, go to Grand Central Station with a bunch of quarters in your pocket, using the payphone, call for work. Yeah. And Ron's made it work for himself. All right. Next week on Pivot Point, Craig McKay. Craig is a dear friend, an amazing editor. He's taught me so much in this industry. He's been nominated twice for an Academy Award. You've seen his movies. You've seen Silence of the Lambs. You've seen Philadelphia. He'll be with us next week on Pivot Point. Stay tuned. In the meantime, wash your hands, don't touch your face, and remember, if he's doing it, why not you? <laughs> <laughs>